0: Christchurch, Church, New Malden, 5th of January 2020, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurtz speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant. The Mystery of the Covenant, part one. If only life were more simple. I wonder if you've ever used that expression. Four days before Christmas Day, and with 18 members of my family coming for lunch on that day, the boiler at the vicarage decided to pack up, meaning that our heating system didn't work. Now, funnily enough, we've got a similar problem in church this morning. But you can imagine how I felt with the boiler packing up just a few days before Christmas with the massed ranks of the Kurt family set to arrive. And you can imagine even more how I felt when I was told that a new boiler could only be fitted on December the 27th. With all the busyness of the services here, and with all the other various things that I needed to get done, I must admit to you that I did find myself asking what God was up to, and using that expression, if only life were more simple. Now, an unusually mild week, weather-wise, and some electric heaters, which I borrowed from church, being a vicar has quite a few perks of that nature, meant that in the end, it wasn't that big a deal. But sometimes there are things that make us use that sort of expression that are far more serious, aren't they? They are a big deal. Things can go wrong in our lives where the consequences really do matter. Disappointments can happen, disasters and tragedies, either for us or for people that we really love that are simply heartbreaking. And at those points, it's completely understandable That we question what God is up to and we ask why life can't be more simple. And this includes the big questions of salvation. This includes the big questions of God's rescue plan for the world. All of us, I think, would prefer matters to do with God and his salvation to be as simple as possible. Because that way we could then get them sussed. We could know completely where we are. We wouldn't have to put up with uncertainties or strange things that we are perplexed by. But when we engage with the Bible and its contents, what we do see is that God's plan of salvation is actually far from simple. We see that there's actually a good deal of mystery and strangeness involved within it. Within this section of Paul's great letter to the Romans that we're now moving on to this January, we see this mystery really on full display. Romans chapters 1 to 8, with all the wonderful truths that it contains about God's salvation, that's relatively well-covered ground for Christians. Romans 1 to 8 has lots of sermons preached upon it and its contents. But by comparison, Romans chapters nine to 11 in particular is much less popular. And that's because it's complicated. That's because it's mysterious. In certain parts, it's rather disturbing. In fact, there have been some who have sought to essentially detach chapters nine to 11 from the rest of Romans, to say that it's not really quite so important, it's stuff that we can relegate, and perhaps today we don't really need to know or worry too much about, certainly compared to the wonderful doctrine and the truths contained in the earlier chapters of Romans. And that's why those chapters and what they contain is so relatively better known. But that's very definitely not the case. In the marriage service, we say what God has joined together, let no one separate or put asunder, don't we? And uh, if we're gonna apply that to any book of the Bible, it is the book of Romans. All these bits belong together. And what these chapters do, chapters nine to 11, is provide us with vital insights into the mystery of God's plan of salvation. They help tell us about things that are particular to the first century, but things that are nonetheless very important for us to know. But in the process, they also show us how things that might look odd, that might look confusing, that might look perplexing in our lives, how those things both can and do have a place within the mystery of God's plan for the salvation of the world. But there is a particular confusing and perplexing issue that Paul is responding to when he writes Romans chapter nine, the chapter that we're looking at this morning. And that's this, Paul is responding to the way in which so many of the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, have failed to respond to Jesus. That's the issue that Paul is speaking directly into when he writes Romans chapter nine the way in which so many of his fellow Jews had not responded to Jesus. Now, some of them, of course, had, and Paul was one of them. But the vast majority of Jews had rejected the claims made about Jesus of Nazareth. And by the time that Paul is writing this letter, sometime in the mid to late 50s, those Jews who had accepted Jesus and became Christians, they were becoming massively outnumbered by the number of non-Jews or Gentiles that had done so. But the Jews were God's chosen people, weren't they? They were the covenant people of Israel. They were the ones whom God had rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were the ones to whom God had given his holy law. They were the ones that God had said he would redeem rather than abandon. All those promises contained within the prophets of the Old Testament. So what on earth was going on? How were Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, how were they meant to understand and relate to those Jews who, unlike them, had failed to accept Jesus as their promised Messiah? Now this is a question that has continued to perplex Christians throughout history. And sometimes, to be frank, the most shameful answers have been produced in response to it. Anti-Semitism has been in the news quite a lot recently, hasn't it, because of the problems that the Labour Party in particular has had in dealing with it. But sadly, the Christian Church has a much worse record than the Labour Party in this regard. With even its heroes, people like Martin Luther, saying at points the most inexcusably evil things about the Jews and how Christians should respond to them. I'm a big fan of Martin Luther. He played a crucial role in what he brought to Western Christianity. When it comes to what he said about the Jews, it is utterly and completely inexcusable, even by the standards of the time. What Luther said was appalling. And it's both because of the current wave of anti-Semitism, which sadly does seem to be on the increase, and its historical roots in Christianity, which we can't explain away, we have to own up to, and admit that that has been there. It's because of both of those things that we need to pay particular attention to these oft-neglected chapters of Romans, the bridesmaid, as it were, of the book of Romans chapters 9 to 11. We need to pay particular attention to these chapters and what Paul is seeking to teach through them. And chapter 9 that we're focusing on this morning, we're looking at chapter 10 next week and chapter 11 the week after. Chapter 9 basically centres upon explaining more of the mystery within God's covenant plan. The mystery of those whom God has chosen, the mystery of those whom God has hardened, and therefore the overall mystery in God's purpose. So we're going to look at those one at a time. First of all, the mystery of those whom God has chosen. Now, if you've got the Bibles open, turn to page 1136, not quite the beginning. But if you look from verses 6 down to 13, that's the part where Paul is dealing with the mystery surrounding those whom God has chosen. And it's here that Paul shows that God's choice, God's election, that's another word for choice, is far more nuanced than is sometimes realized. Standard Jewish thinking was that God has straightforwardly chosen the people of Israel. But what Paul says is that when we examine the matter more closely, it's a bit more complex. Abraham, for instance, the founding father of Israel, he had two sons, but only one, only through his second son Isaac, Paul says, rather than through the first son Ishmael, was his offspring reckoned. The covenant line only continued through Isaac rather than Ishmael. And later on, when Isaac himself and his wife Rebekah had children, Paul says, God's election only continued through the younger son, Jacob, rather than his older twin brother, Esau. And, Paul says, this choice had absolutely nothing to do with human desire or effort, but was entirely down to the mercy and compassion of God. That's in verses 14 to 16, where Paul quotes God's later words to Moses, and this is what they said. I will have mercy on those whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And those words were said to Moses, but if we go back to the story of Jacob in particular, we know that this was true, because Jacob, of course, was an absolute scoundrel. If we read the story of Jacob, there's nothing particularly moral or upstanding that will make God choose him over his brother Esau, and it was with the help of his conniving mother, Rebecca, that he cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright in the most outrageous manner. And yet with all of that sin, or perhaps even because of it, God still chose Jacob. Indicating that when it came to God's election, when it came to God's choice, something very deep and mysterious, rather than simple, was going on. But it doesn't end there. Because Paul then goes on to talk about the mystery of those whom God had hardened. Now this is from verse 17 of Romans 9. As Paul invokes the story of the Exodus, we had part of that story read to us just a few moments ago. And all those strange passages where we're told that before the escape from Egypt, God actually hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So that he refused to let the Israelites go. At some points we're told Pharaoh hardened his heart hardened his heart, but at other parts we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now that's a pretty odd thing for God to have done, isn't it? But in verse 17, Paul quotes the words that Pharaoh was told by God via Moses. And this is what he quotes from that passage from Exodus 9. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's words to Pharaoh, whom he'd hardened against the Israelites and against him. What this all amounts to, Paul says from verse 18, is that God is sovereign. God is completely sovereign over this whole process of salvation. He has mercy on those on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those that he wants to harden, and questioning this is a little bit like lumps of clay trying to talk back to a potter who's forming that clay into pieces of pottery, some for noble purposes, Paul says, and some for common usage. Now, it is rather perplexing, isn't it? But what all of these points amount to is the third point that Paul makes in this passage, which is the overall mystery of God's purpose. And this is from verse 22. As Paul reveals that all of this choosing of some by God and hardening of others by him, rather than being randomly random or arbitrary or unfair, It was all for a purpose, specifically the purpose of bringing the Gentiles into God's people. Throughout this chapter, Romans 9, Paul has constantly quoted the covenant story of Israel, hasn't he? Through his references to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and now he quotes from the prophets. He quotes from Hosea, and then he quotes from Isaiah. And he quotes from the way that they spoke of the future day When those whom God had declared were not his people and were outside of his love would be brought into both of those things. When those people who were outside of his people would be made part of his people and those who were outside of God's love would be brought into that love. And what Paul appears to be saying, and this will be repeated as we continue to look at these chapters over the next two weeks is that some of God's people being hardened was in a strange and mysterious way all part of the way in which his purpose for bringing outsiders into his covenant family was being fulfilled. God was hardening some precisely in order to extend his mercy to others. There's a mystery about the way that God's covenant plan was working itself out. Now, one of the verses that has troubled Christians in this passage over the years is verse 22, where Paul speaks of some being prepared for destruction as objects of vessels of wrath. It was the reformer John Calvin who used this passage and others to advance his case for what became known as double predestination. The doctrine that says that not only does God choose some people known as the elect for salvation, he also chooses others for damnation. I remember first learning uh, about Calvin and his doctrine when I did A-level history, and worrying more than a bit about whether I might be one of those chosen for damnation. But such thinking is actually an example of the unhelpfulness of making Romans into an abstract theological treatise. And forgetting the very specific question that it's answering here of the role of the Jews within God's covenant purposes. And when we put all of these various strands of Romans together, what Paul appears to be saying is that Israel was indeed hardened very like Pharaoh was earlier in the biblical story, and made into a vessel of wrath, but precisely so that the sin and wrath carried first by Israel could then be passed on to her Messiah, Jesus, and brought under God's judgment and condemnation when he was crucified. You see, it's that understanding that makes sense of all those bits about the Jewish law, those very strange bits that we looked at before Christmas in chapters five and seven. That mysterious role of the law being given to increase the trespass, I wonder if you remember those bits that we looked at back in November. What Paul appears to be saying at the end of Romans nine is that God deliberately caused his people Israel to stumble so that those beyond his people, in other words, the Gentiles would be able to join it. The Jews who sought to find a righteousness of their own, in other words, an exclusive covenant status that belonged to them and them alone, they failed to find that. But super ironically, the Gentiles who'd not pursued the same righteousness, they'd ended up obtaining it. Now it is mysterious, isn't it? It is strange, it's odd. And it would still seem pretty awful and unfair if we didn't note Paul's clarity over this state of affairs not being God's final word. Particularly when we look at Romans 11 in a couple of weeks' time, what we'll see is that the bit that we're looking at this week is part of the process of God's covenant plan rather than representing its final chapter. There's more to be said particularly about God's interaction with the people of Israel, than those bits in the middle of the story. But it's nonetheless good for us to pause the story at this point, because we do live in the middle of God's process, the middle of the process of God's unfolding plan. We don't live at the conclusion of the story, do we? We live in the middle of its unfolding, rather like Paul did. And it's because of this that we need to note, I believe, three particular attitudes that we're called to as we seek to walk by faith in God as part of this process of his salvation plan being uh, revealed. And the first of these attitudes, I believe, we're called to is this continuing belief and trust in God's goodness and love and respect for his sovereignty. It's very natural, as I said earlier, especially when things are tough, for us to ask what God is up to and to ask why life can't be simpler. But a vital part of our Christian faith is continuing to believe in God's love and continuing to believe in God's control over the world. And when events happen that bring both of those things into doubt, that's then the real challenge of faith. It's really the application of that very famous verse from the previous chapter. Romans 8, like a lot of the first eight chapters, is relatively well known. And most of us here will know that verse, Romans 8, verse 28, that says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We can know that verse and we can be familiar with it, but it can very easily become a cliche. And Romans 9 really fills out what it means to believe in that verse. Because it's when trials and difficulties come our way or when we look at a world that seems to be completely losing its way in terms of any godliness or purpose, it's then that the challenge comes to us to continue believing whatever things look like, to continue believing in both God's love and his control over the world. And the key to doing this is really the next attitude that we need to cultivate, which is humility. Humility about how little we grasp about the mystery of God's purposes. So continuing belief in God's goodness and his love and respect for his sovereignty, but what we need alongside that is humility about how little we grasp about the mystery of God's purposes. Is he complex problems, they tend to need complex solutions, don't they? And God's wisdom and his ways are also far beyond our comprehension. He wouldn't be God otherwise. And what's required, required from us, therefore, alongside continuing faith in God's goodness and his love, is a humility that accepts the limits of our vision of what God is up to. The book of Exodus talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, doesn't it? And it talks about that being part of God's mysterious plan for saving the Israelites from Egypt. But no one, if it hadn't been revealed to St. Paul, would have guessed that God was using the very same approach with his covenant people. That God was using the very same approach with the people of Israel as part of his plan for bringing in the Gentiles, God deliberately hardening large swathes of his chosen people in order that those outside of his people would come in. No one would have guessed that. No one could have imagined that if God hadn't revealed it. But God did reveal it through St. Paul. And Romans 9 reveals that God was actually working to a purpose behind that mystery. And what this suggests to us is that we need a greater humility in acknowledging how little we can grasp of the mystery of God's purposes, especially when, as with God's purposes for Israel, the story is in its middle stages rather than at its end. And perhaps at the start of this new year and this new decade there is some part of your life where you need to hear this. Perhaps there is some difficulty that just seems impervious to being resolved. Perhaps there's someone in your family who seems hopelessly hardened against God and against his love. Despite all of your prayers, despite all of your best wishes for them, despite where you earnestly before God desire them to be. It can be heartbreaking. And at the start of chapter nine, we see that Paul felt precisely the same about the resistance of his fellow Jews to God's love for them in Jesus. We haven't looked at this bit yet, but if you look at the start of chapter nine, we see a tremendous insight into the anguish that Paul felt. And we can often feel the same. Can be heartbreaking when we have someone that we deeply love and who's close to us who seems so hardened against god's love but what we're called to in these circumstances is a similar faith in the mystery that surrounds god's implementation of his purposes sometimes for reasons beyond our comprehension God does harden some while revealing his mercy to others. And it can be really hard to be in the middle of that process. But it's a case of recognizing, firstly, that the middle of a story isn't the same as the end of that story. And secondly, that whatever it looks like, God does know what he's up to as God continues to unfold his plan of salvation. And this should lead us to a third vital attitude that is again displayed by St. Paul. It's continuing love for everyone, regardless of where they currently appear to stand before God. See, that's what we see at the start of chapter nine, in Paul's massive anguish and continuing love for his fellow Jews. Paul makes this incredibly heartfelt declaration of his love and his commitment to his brother and sister, fellow Jews. Incidentally, they are verses that should have made any form of anti-Semitism amongst Christians completely impossible. How? the anti-Semitism within the history of Christianity could have reached the depths that it has, when Romans 9, particularly its first few verses exists, is rather unfathomable. So it has a great deal to say to us about the way that Christians need to love and respect and care for the Jews. And that in itself is a vital application for us today. Because as Christians, we need to be at the absolute forefront of opposing this terrible evil of anti-Semitism. And that doesn't mean being uh, anti-Arabs or Muslims and failing to show love and respect for them. But it does mean that we need to love and respect and honor the Jews. But its application is also wider to us this morning. Because our calling, as we wait for God's purposes to be completed, and as we live with all of the mystery that this involves, is to continue showing God's love to everyone that we encounter, particularly those who at present seem beyond that love. That is a strong and major part of our calling, to particularly seek to show love to those who seem at present to be beyond God's love. That's the love that Paul models at the start of this chapter. It's the love that he wants the largely Gentile church in Rome to show towards the not yet Christian Jews. And it's the love that he also summons us to show to everyone. But as I say, particularly to those who at present seem irredeemably hardened against God and his great love for them. Romans 9 is a deeply mysterious chapter, but it's a vital one, because it shows us how much we need to trust in God and the mystery of his loving purposes, as this great story of his covenant plan of salvation makes its way towards completion. Let's pray. And perhaps let's hold someone now in our hearts before God, someone we know, perhaps someone close to us, who appears completely hardened against God and his love for them. Let's, in the silence, hold that person before God now. Heavenly Father, there's a great deal of mystery in the unfolding of your plan of salvation, and much of it perplexes and confuses us. But we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to continue in faith, trusting in your goodness and your love and your wisdom. And we bring before you this morning in prayer those whom we love, who, like Paul's fellow Jews, seem so hardened against you, and trusting in your goodness, trusting in your love, trusting in your sovereignty, we ask, Lord God, that you would reveal your light and your love to them. And ahead of that happening, Lord God, we pray that you'd use us to continue displaying your love. Would you help us to keep going, to be people who reflect your great love for the world, and particularly for that person that you've placed on our hearts this morning? And we appeal to you, Lord God, to use that love as part of your ongoing process for your redemption of the world and its people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.